0: Hey, that was good. First Peter is awesome, huh? Well, this morning we are going to consider uh, kind of a theme in First Peter, and that is that we can avoid Satan's traps through humility. The end of 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to be looking at that, and then we're going to consider kind of how that, that works, how some of the things that Peter says in that section work their way out throughout the earlier part of his book. And I just want to just start by just saying I'm so thankful for the Lord's work in, uh, um, in uh, uh, Steve Pobletti's life, that the Lord has just blessed him. And it has been such an encouragement for me this week to just see the way that this church family loves Steve, loves Kathy, has come alongside them, prayed for them. And one of the things that has been encouraging to me is to just see the way humility has worked its way out in that. And so we're going to be looking at humility as an avenue for avoiding Satan's traps. Now, um, Scripture is clear in in, in 1 Peter as well, but Scripture is clear that we are in a spiritual battle, and we'll see if we can get this thing working. There we go. We need to avoid Satan's traps through humility. And Peter ends his book toward the end where he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Paul's told us this in Ephesians 6 Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We really do need to be people that as we're living life, as we're thinking about the things that we're going through, that we recognize that we are in a spiritual battle. We have an enemy that is waiting to destroy us. And one of the things also in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 One of the things that the Apostle Paul says is that we're not going to be outwitted by Satan because we are aware of his schemes. That's one of the great things. God has given us the devil's playbook in our life. And one of his greatest tools is the tool of pride. That's the thing that Satan loves to use in people's lives. And it's amazing how, how pridefulness impacts every part of life. And so we're going to be talking this morning about humility and how that helps us avoid Satan's traps. So what is humility? Humility is a modest or low view of one's own importance or rank. How how important are you? How talented are you? How needed are you? And humility is a modest view of that. It's lowliness of mind. It is unselfish it's thinking about others instead of thinking about yourself humility is a right view of yourself if you think accurately about yourself you'll be humble some people feel like I'm I'm amazing I have such wonderful talent and I am the most important person here however I want to be humble and I want to put other people first See, a lot of times that's the way people view humility. It's, it's not thinking about how great we are. When Romans chapter 12 is clear, humility comes from accurate thinking. When you see yourself correctly, then you will be humble. So it's the opposite of pride and arrogance. Have you ever thought about why pride is so destructive? Pride is... It's Satan's favorite tool. It's, it's why Satan was thrown out of heaven. He looked at God and said, I don't want God to be worshipped. I want to be worshipped. And in the qualifications for elders, uh, one of the things that's mentioned is you can't have leaders who are new converts. Or they may fall into the trap of pride. That is Satan's favorite tool to use against people. It's, pride is so devastating Because it takes everything good in your life and actually makes it something negative. God blesses you with talent, but if you see your talent and if you're puffed up by your talent, your talent actually becomes a spiritual hindrance. So many times we'll look at famous athletes or we'll look at people who just have amazing abilities and we just think, oh, if only they became Christians, God could use them. The truth is that it's probably far more difficult to use a person with great talent than it is to use somebody with no talent because pride is something that actually makes God be against us. Pride turns spiritual growth into a hindrance. You see a person who's really struggling spiritually and and they become a Christian or they start learning great things about the Bible and then all of a sudden they start to become prideful and they feel like, oh, look at all the stuff I've learned. Look at all that I know. And the Bible tells us that we'll be seeing this, but God's opposed to the proud. And so Satan uses pride to take everything good in your life, even God's blessings in your life, and to use them against you. And so we're going to see today that um, when you look at the life of Peter, one of the things that was encouraging to me is you look at the ways that Satan hindered Peter personally, and then you read the book of 1 Peter, and you see how he's so transformed, and the things that he says in the book of 1 Peter are the antidote to all the things that he struggled with in throughout the Gospels. And so we'll be looking at that, and so we're going to see first that uh, humility is the antidote against self-interest, putting your own needs first. It's the antidote for a lack of love toward other people and it's also the antidote to fear and suffering which is some of the things that you see in the book of first Peter. Let's look at chapter one of first Peter and we'll look at just a few things there and then we're going to go to chapter five but let's just start here it says Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion doesn't that sound like James he's writing to those who were dispersed because of persecution and here we have Peter he's also writing to uh, the Gentiles who were also dispersed according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit verse 2 sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood the whole idea of faith being an expression of works in James you see that same idea in 1st Peter where Peter's talking about how they were saved for obedience but it doesn't say here that they were saved by their obedience they were saved for obedience but through the sprinkling of Jesus through the sacrifice that Jesus made so We won't go through all that, but as you read 1 Peter, there's so much about obedience, but always pointing to our salvation comes because of the death of Christ. Now, the apostle Peter, he is mentioned more than any other apostle. He's mentioned 210 times in the New Testament. And the apostle Paul's mentioned 162. Every other disciple combined is 142 times. So Peter gets talked about a lot he was so outspoken. He said great things, like his great confession of Christ, but he was always putting his foot in his mouth. Right after he makes this great statement, just right after that, he tells Jesus not to go to the cross, and Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. Uh, Peter, during the transfiguration, he had the privilege of seeing things that no other disciple saw, but it's interesting during the transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah and Jesus are there, Peter walks up and says, um, he, you want me to make some houses for you guys? And Mark tells us that he said that because he just didn't know what to say. So he, he was always just kind of saying dumb things. He was the outspoken person. And the, we find out through tradition that Peter did suffer and die. And tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down because when it came time for his execution, he said, I don't deserve to die like Jesus, and so he asked to be crucified upside down. And uh, one of the other things we learn about Peter is that he traveled and ministered with his wife. When you look at the end of 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 13, it says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings Likely that was Peter's reference to his wife. And the apostle Paul tells us that Peter took along a believing wife in his ministry. So Peter was married and he brought his wife with him. And he was completely transformed by Christ. And one of the things that we see that was huge in his life was what he saw in the suffering and death of Jesus. In his own failure. When Jesus looked over at Peter after Peter had denied him. That impacted Peter's life and so let's look at the first thing uh, turn with me to Peter chapter first Peter chapter five verse one and we're going to see that humility <laughs> all right <laughs> we can advance the slide I don't know what I did well we'll advance it if possible we'll see the first thing that humility overcomes the trap of self-interest. It overcomes the trap of self-interest. Have you thought about the way that self-interest is a hindrance to what God wants to do in your life and what he wants to do through you? Look at uh, Matthew 16:23. This is right after Peter uh, identifies Jesus as the Christ, then he tells Jesus not to go to the cross. And, and this is an influence of Satan in Peter's life. And look how Jesus responds. But he turned to him and he said, get behind me, Satan. So when, when Peter's talking about how Satan is a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, he's thinking about his own life. He's thinking about his huge failures. And he's thinking about Satan's involvement in that. And so Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. This is a satanic influence in Peter's life, but he says, you are a hindrance to me. Now think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, if there's any way that this could pass, this cup could pass from me, God let it pass. He kept praying, I don't want to go to the cross. And Satan, I'm sure, knew how Jesus was feeling about that, and he spoke through Peter to say the thing to Jesus that would be a stumbling block to him. Jesus, don't go to the cross. And so that temptation happens. Peter is a, a person who's being used or manipulated by Satan at that point. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, Peter was thinking about Jesus, you going to the cross doesn't fit in with my plans. Doesn't fit in with us being the great people connected with the, the ruler of Israel. And so uh, that doesn't fit into my plans, Jesus don't go to the cross. A focus on self-interest. Now, think about the conflicts that the disciples had about who would be the greatest. Now, look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. And Peter's going to talk to spiritual leaders in this section. And he's going to be talking to them about their motivation for ministry. And this is definitely a calling and a commitment and something that is required of spiritual leaders. But this is to be true of everybody. And it's interesting that he addresses self-interest. So if you look at verse 1, it says, So I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder." So Peter, the apostle Peter, is writing to people who are subordinate to him. He is an apostle, and yet he looks at them, and he doesn't lord it over them. He speaks to them as on his level, and he says, I'm just a fellow elder. You see that humility in Peter, not seeing himself as higher than other people, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, The moment that Peter was witnessing the sufferings of Christ, Peter was denying Jesus. And Jesus looks over at him in the midst of his struggles and he looks at Peter after Peter denied Jesus. And I think that's what brings humility into the life of Peter is thinking about his failures, the suffering of Jesus, what he saw and how that was transforming to him as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Peter knew what his hope was. He knew what his future was. He knew that he would be resurrected and glorified and that he would rule with Christ. And so he thought about his future and how that would impact his present. Now, here's his instructions to leaders. He says in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So when Peter talks about motivation, he says, shepherd the flock of God. That's a word for pastor. It's to care for and to do that willingly, to let that flow out of your heart, to have a desire to care for people. That's the motivation for service. It's not I want to be in charge. I want to be able to tell people what to do. It's people have spiritual needs and I want to care for them. Um. One of the first qualifications of an elder is desire. It says, whoever desires the office of overseer, that is a fine work that he desires. So you should have a desire for it. But it's not a desire for the position. It's a desire for the opportunity to care for and to serve people. By the way, that's one of the things that attracted me to this church. When I was meeting with the elders and I just said, you know, what, what are your priorities? What is it that you're looking for? What do you want to do? And, and to sit in a room with people and to have them say, there is a group of believers here that need to be cared for. And we're looking for somebody who can help us do that. And, and that, I'm just thinking, okay, these people care about the people in this church. That's a team I want to be a part of. And so it's a desire for the work. It's a desire to care for people, not for the position. It's not self-interest. It's not for shameful gain, for what you can get out of it. It's for how you can serve and get and give. Um, Oswald Sanders wrote a book called Spiritual Leadership, and at the beginning of one of his chapters, he says, he quotes Jeremiah 45, and he says, Do you seek things for yourself? Do not seek them. That's one of the key things in spiritual leaders. And anybody functioning in any leadership position in any part of the church, it can never be about you. It has to be about the Lord. So not self-interest. And verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears or the senior pastor, Jesus, When he appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's the first thing. Humility, genuine humility, puts self-seeking self-interest to the side. And that's one of the things that Satan used in Peter's life, and it's something he'll use in your life. If your life is about you and what you can get and what you want, that will be a trap that Satan will use to manipulate you. Here's the second thing. Humility opens the door to a biblical love for other people. Philippians 2, 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So that's pride. That's arrogance. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So it's not just looking out for yourself. It's caring about other people. It's seeing other people as more significant. Romans 12, 16 talks about harmony. You know when there's conflict? Conflict happens when, when we're saying, hey, what do I get? What do I want? When we're concerned with ourself. But a genuine love for other people shows itself in harmony. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty or prideful, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Humility opens the door to loving other people the way God would call us to love people. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, like you just think about the description of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It doesn't envy. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritated or resentful. You ever find yourself irritated with people in ministry? Well, that's not love. And so humility sets those things aside. Look at 1 Peter 5, 5, likewise, you who are younger be subject to the elders. So that's putting yourself under and being in submission to the elders. But look at this next phrase here. It says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. So humility opens the door for love. We're all supposed to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. It's like when you think about clothes, clothe yourself, like what is the dominant impression that a person should have when they meet you? That you're a humble person. It's something that should characterize us. It's something that should display itself at all times, that we're humble people. And then this powerful statement, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now think about that in terms of ministry. If Satan can get you to be prideful, it erases the value of anything you have or can do. You could have the greatest singing voice. You could have incredible administrative talent. You could just be artistic and and just be amazing at the things that you do. But what you've got to realize is that if God is against you, Then nothing you do matters. No talent is of any value. And so, if you could have the most talented person who's prideful, or you could have somebody who's mediocre and humble, we would always pick the mediocre person. Because what makes a ministry, what makes a church successful, is that God's in it. It's not what the people do, it's what God does. Now, it's an amazing blessing and a rare thing to find a person with talent who's also humble. And hey, if we can have that, we want that, right? But we have to realize that pride is destructive and and pridefulness is just something that Satan will use to get you to do whatever he wants you to do. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I'll tell you, one of the problems with pride is that it's blinding. People who are prideful don't know they're prideful. Peter in that moment was not thinking to himself, I'm being prideful. Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. Going to the cross is a bad idea. Think about the arrogance of telling Jesus that, Jesus, come on, enough of this crazy talk. Like Who says that to the God of the universe who knows everything? And Peter's not sitting there thinking to himself, oh, you know, right now I'm, I'm being prideful and arrogant. That's a problem with pridefulness is that when you have it, you can't see it, it's blinding. One of the benefits to being physically blind is that you know you're blind. You walk around, you walk into things, you can't see where you're going. But when you're spiritually blind, oh, that's a tough place to be because you can't see it, you don't realize it. Now think about the story of Ruth. Do you remember Haman? Haman hated Mordecai. He was a prideful, arrogant man. Uh, Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. And so Haman was just like, I am going to kill Mordecai. I hate Mordecai. And one of the things that you see in this story is that God is bringing about Haman's destruction. And the very elements of Haman's destruction, he doesn't see for what they are. The thing that God's going to do to kill Haman, Haman's excited about because he thinks it's his exaltation. Remember that? Esther's like, okay, I'm going to have a dinner where I'm going to tell the king that Haman's trying to wipe out me and my people. And Haman gets an invitation to this dinner that is going to be his undoing. And he goes home and he's like, Esther invited me. This is so awesome. I mean, everything's going my way. And he builds some gallows that he, can hang, um, that he can hang Mordecai on. And then he goes to this dinner, and then the next day Esther invites him back, and he goes again, and she finally tells the king, that's the problem with pride and arrogance is you think you're being successful. You think everything's going your way when God's about to bring destruction into your life, and you just don't see it for what it is. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And when we clothe ourselves in this, it allows us to pour out love on the people around us. We are to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. Pride hinders love. It makes us impatient. It makes us inconsiderate. It does not reflect an understanding of the way God wants us to minister and interact with people. One of the things you see in the book of First Peter is how often he says, earnestly love one another. How many times he says, put away bitterness, put away those things, love one another. You see this person that in his life in the gospels, it doesn't seem that he's dominated by a love for people. And yet when you read 1 Peter, it's just love people, love people, be soft-hearted toward people, forgive people. When people are tormenting you, doing things that are bothering you, love people like that is throughout the book of 1 Peter. So I was thinking about um, how pride makes us not consider other people. When I was younger in ministry, I used to do youth ministry. It was back in the days when we used overhead projectors for the songs. How many of you guys remember those days? All right, yep, all the older folks remember that. You young people are like, "Uh, overhead projector, what's that? (laughs) One of the things that used to really aggravate me is I'd go down to the youth room and I'd have, I was all planned and ready to go, and I'd go down there, my my overhead projector was missing. And that was so irritating to me, so then I would start thinking, okay, where'd this thing go? And I'm running all over the church, youth group's about to start, and I'm going all over. I cannot find my overhead projector anywhere. And, and so finally I'm like looking in some closet and I find it stuffed in some closet somewhere and I take it down to the youth room and it was so irritating I printed out this little thing and stuck it to the overhead projector that says please return this to the youth room. Please don't use this without asking. And it was just so aggravating. But I never thought about the fact that whoever took that was somebody who was probably a volunteer on the way to the church late from work trying to get there to care for people and serve people and they're showing up and they're supposed to do uh, lead worship and they can't figure out how to do it or where to get what they need and so they run down and they find the overhead projector and then they stick there and they use it and it's like they're just trying to serve people and care for people and they don't have what they need and they're borrowing it and yeah they should have called me and asked if they knew who I was but they're probably busy at the end of the day, and, and now they got to get home because they have these other things to do. So you got this volunteer doing ministry, using my stuff. It was so irritating. <laughs> and then I just think about, you know what? We should care about each other and be willing to be inconvenienced. And so I went to the elders of the church and said, hey, can we buy a second projector? <laughs> so that they can have one for their needs and so I can have one and so we cannot be bothering each other and taking each other's stuff. Like, try to get everybody's needs met. But the point is that when you love people, you overlook those kinds of things because you realize that the ultimate purpose is that we're encouraging and building up the body of Christ. And we want to help other people to do that. and They're going to help us to do that. And that's Peter. You see just this love that he... Talks about and expresses. Look at First um, Peter chapter four, verse eleven, verse seven. 1 Peter four seven. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers above all keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins see in the body of christ when you really love people and people do things that they shouldn't do or that inconvenience you or man love covers that we just love people we overlook it it goes on And it says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Okay, you can use my overhead projector, but I don't like it. (laughs) As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So we use our gifts to build up and to serve and to care for one another. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the uh, uh, oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Everything that we do is for the glory of Jesus. And so... Humility helps us love other people because we realize sometimes we just feel like, like I I know for myself, um, there's probably times I thought I'm the youth pastor and these volunteers are taking my stuff. You know, sometimes we may have an overinflated view of our own importance and humility says, no, I am not important than anybody else. I had a friend in college that was so encouraging to me in the whole attitude of humility um he would he would uh, whenever we were going somewhere he'd run to the van and he'd say, "I got back seat or to the car I got back seat he's always calling back seat and getting in the back seat. um he used to wear his watch upside down, and one time I said, Matt, dude, you got your watch on upside down and he said, "I know I want other people to be able to see what time it is <laughs> um, I had to be careful to never tell him that I liked something he had because one time. Uh, he let me borrow a shirt, and I said, man, I really like this shirt, and he gave it to me. Uh, he broke up with a girl he was dating, and his dad had given him this really nice $300 leather jacket when $300 bucks was a lot of money. And this girl he was dating, it made me so mad because she, after she broke up with him, she said, hey, Matt, I really like that jacket. Can I have it? And he gave it to her. And I was like, Matt... You are not giving that jacket to her, but he he gave it to her, and she asked. And I just thought, she knew he was like that, and she took his stuff. Um, He was a humble, gracious guy, and what's amazing is he he was a youth pastor for a while, and then he was a missionary in in Mexico, and now he's back as as a pastor in the same church he was at before. But in his life, from the time he was in college to this day, he has that same level of humility that just comes out in how he treats people. He's such an encouragement and an inspiration to me. Now, by contrast, I went to a leadership retreat one time and there were a bunch of elders in the church. And when we were at this retreat, all the elders (laughs) were racing to get in to get the best bed. (laughs) And the oldest slowest guy (laughs) was sleeping in the living room. Like the the guy that everybody should have got there and made sure he had somewhere to sleep, he was in the living room. And I just want you guys to know that is not an expression of love and that is not what God wants from believers. So we're people who we avoid self-interest, we love people, we avoid that trap of not loving and humility counteracts the harm that Satan intends through fear and suffering. Remember when um, Luke 22:31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. So Jesus, when you think about Peter's denial of Jesus, that was an attack of Satan in his life. Jesus says, Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I'm praying for you. Now, that's got to be encouraging that Jesus was praying for Peter. But those things, that fear, that terror that Peter was feeling, he's watching Jesus tortured and killed. And he's afraid the same people doing that to Jesus are going to do this to me. And then the servant girl looks at him and says, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? Aren't you one of the ones who was following him? And this sense of panic comes across Peter and he's like, no, I don't know him. I don't know him. And he starts swearing, I don't know him. He is afraid of persecution and suffering. And that's what Satan wanted to do. He wanted to drive that fear into his life. You ever sense that in our culture? Like, how about the newscasters who identify sin as sin and they get fired? Or people who stand for Christ and there's a world who says, that's not what Jesus would say. You can't be that way. And we start to feel this cultural pressure and we're afraid of the persecution we might face. But humility allows us to avoid that trap that Satan would be setting. Uh, Jesus says here in verse 32 up on the screen, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I mean, just an amazing thing because Jesus knows Peter's going to fail, but it's not going to be a permanent failure. It's going to be a stumble, and God's going to restore him. Jesus is going to restore him, and he says, and when you've come back, care for your brothers, strengthen your brothers. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. The mighty hand of God. When you think about the fact that God is ultimately in control of everything, there is nothing you face that you don't face because God is intending that. Do you remember Job. Like, God's been protecting Job, right? Satan goes and says, hey, of course Job loves you, God, because you protect him. But just remove your hand of protection, and you'll see him curse you to to your face. And in a second, Satan has timed his destruction of of Job's family perfectly so that everybody's destroyed in these different locations, but he times it perfectly so that the messengers coming to talk to Job all show up at the same time. Like, you read this story, it's like, while he was speaking, your kids died. While he was speaking, this was destroyed. While he was speaking, this is destroyed. Like, in a, in a second, devastation just comes into Job's life. And then he, he blesses God in that. And then Satan says, oh, yeah, sure, a person's willing to give up his stuff. But if you touch his body, all oh, then he'll curse you to your face. And so God says, all right, Satan, you can't kill Job, but you can, you can touch his body. And so he gets these boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He's just in incredible suffering and difficulty. And Job, his wife comes to him and just says, hey, Job, curse God and die. And Job says, you're a foolish woman. Do we accept blessing from God and not adversity? You know, James chapter 1, right? Consider it joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So God uses difficulty and trials as a blessing in our life. And so humility says, God, you're in charge. You're the mighty hand in this universe. I am your slave. I'm your servant. Whatever you want to do to me is fine because you're God. Whatever I know you have my best interests at heart. Rather than pridefully saying this isn't fair. I don't deserve this. God, who do you think you are? Hey, I prayed to receive Christ and and you're supposed to fix everything in my life and look, things aren't going the way I want. That's prideful. Humility says, God, you know what's best, you know what I need, and I accept whatever you you give me. I I accept the blessing and I also accept the adversity. And so for Peter, that's what he sees here under the mighty hand of God so that he will exalt you at the proper time. There's a lot that could be said about where we think our position should be. But look at verse 7, casting your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Man, in that moment when Peter was stressed out and afraid of persecution, If he would have just thought, hey, Jesus knows this. He has it all under control, and Jesus cares about me. That would have strengthened him through that trial, and it eventually did. That he comes to the place where he's giving up his life, and he says, I want to die in a way that honors the Lord. And he saw that as a privilege. Look at verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. So during that difficulty, do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane? Do you remember what word he used? He said, watch with me. Uh, That's talking about prayer. Jesus was saying, Peter, pray for me. And here, Peter's thinking about the way that Satan manipulated him in his life. And he just says, be sober-minded and be watchful. Pray. Like, that's humility. God, I need your help in difficulties and struggles. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. And James tells us, if you resist the devil, he'll flee. Stand firm in your faith. That's believing and trusting that God is good. Remember Hebrews? It says he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not the only one going through this, this difficulty. Everybody goes through these things. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of grace who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So God's going to eventually make it all right. That's our trust. That's our hope for the future. So humility is something we should always strive for. It'll help us avoid the traps that Satan sets. The problem is we should all be working toward it. But the moment we think we have it, we've lost it. That's the most amazing thing. Like in, in Numbers, it says that, that Moses was the most humble man who ever lived. But you want to know what always struck me really weird about that? Moses wrote that. <laughs> he wrote the first five books of the Bible. And you just think, who can write the most humble man alive about themselves and still be humble? And I think that's because Moses saw God face to face. He saw himself accurately. And I think as for you and I, as we study scripture, as we see ourselves accurately, as we see God for who he is, that brings humility in our life and it, it allows us to put aside self-interest. It allows us to genuinely love the people around us. And it allows us to endure the suffering that the Lord may bring into our life. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your kindness. And Lord, we need to be dependent on you. We can't do it on our own. We need your help. We fail constantly. And Lord, we're so thankful that our standing before you is not based on our performance or our talent or any of those things. It's based on the work of Jesus and your love for us. And Lord, we're so thankful for that. We ask that you would help us to be genuinely humble people in your name. Amen.